This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Okay, for this episode, I am reviewing 22 things you did not know about Mopars. Now, I must admit, I'm not a huge Mopar fan. Some of the cars I absolutely love, like the AAR Cuda. I'm just not there when it comes to Mopars. I can appreciate them. I'd love to have a Challenger convertible. Uh, a lot of things I love about Mopars. Uh, it's just I didn't grow up loving them like a lot of you have, so I appreciate your patience with me. Uh, but I will review a bunch of cool facts. Now, before I do, there's a couple things I want to share. First off, uh, if you haven't joined my YouTube channel, please subscribe and follow. Just so you know, Every day at 4.30, I'm uploading a 60-second short, 60 seconds or less. Now, typically, this will be would you keep cash or collect? So as I travel this great country of ours, I try to hit fun shops, uh, consignment shops, muscle car dealers, whatever, and I'll pick up some cars that I think are interesting. I'll walk around them, and I'll give you my perspective on if I would keep cash or collect those cars and a lot of you are piping in your responses as well, which I absolutely love. So my goal is to do one a day. I've got these planned out through the end of this month right now, so you'll see what's coming up. Uh, so please, please join me on YouTube if you haven't already. Now also, be sure to stick around till fact number 20. So I'm reviewing 22 things you did not know about Mopars. Fact number 20 is a shocker for sure. Actually, even 19. There's some shockers in here, so, you know be prepared. <laughs> now, if you're audio only, uh, I will have some pictures of the cars we are talking about on the YouTube channel, so please go and check that out. Now, just because I need to mention it, Arm Sotheby's uh, Monterey sale, we are consigning for that sale. It is still open. I believe we have until June the 30th. Now, the longer you wait, the harder it is to get cars in. <laughs> so, as there's fewer and fewer spots, the chances of getting in a, you know, $60,000 Fiat Jolly are less, and uh, they're just looking for some of the heavy hitters, such as this. We have a 1967 Ferrari 275 GTB 4 cam, but it was previously owned by Steve McQueen. Right now, that's the star of the show. That estimate is 5 to $7 million. I guarantee you there will be some bigger, cooler things coming. I know Thursday night, it's a very special evening. Some very high-end barn finds will be there, and this is the only time I can recall that there's barn finds at Monterey. So be sure to check it out. Go to our website, contact one of the car specialists. You're welcome to shoot me a note, G Stanley at Arm Sotheby's or Greg at the Collected Car Podcast. If you would just like to talk about it, explore your options. Uh, doesn't hurt to explore the options, you know? So I did want to bring that up. All right. So we're going to get started here on our 22 facts. This first chunk of facts will be from Haggerty, a cool article that they had. Theirs was actually, I think, 16 facts but I was able to pull out some more. All right, the first one, obviously, what does Mopar stand for? Now, like the word brunch, which combines breakfast and lunch, Mopar is a combination of motor and parts. Mopar was originally used by Chrysler back in the 20s, but it officially became a brand in 1937, way back then, first appearing on a can of antifreeze sold by the Chrysler Motor Parts. Now, also, I just have to give a, a shout out, check out my Instagram page, uh, be sure to check out the stories because I'll post some cool stuff that's only up there for 24 hours. Recently, I did post uh, some pictures of barn find Hemis I came across in Kentucky last weekend. I will probably put those in the regular feed, so stay tuned there. That just popped in my head because talking about Mopar 
parts. Uh, I do recall taking a picture of a muffler, uh, a muffler box, and it said Mopar parts on it, I believe, and it had a cool little cartoon on it as well. All right, I digress. Today, as in the original muscle car era, Mopar is the name of Fiat Chrysler Automobiles Parts and Service Division. If you walked up to your local Plymouth dealer's park counter in 1968 and bought some bits for your Hemi Roadrunner, the box would have said Mopar on the side, just as it would today if you bought a new supercharger belt for your Dodge Challenger Hellcat online. Now, at some point in the 1960s, Mopar became catch-all slang for cars built and sold by Chrysler Dodge in Plymouth. Over the years, its reach grew to include earlier brands like DeSoto and Imperial and eventually Jeep and Ram. Mopar or no, or no car is the cry of the faithful. Mopar guy, a badge of honor to many. All right. I didn't even think about DeSoto and Imperial. I love Imperials. Those early Imperials are really cool. All right. Our second fact, this one was rather shocking to me, and I've got a picture pulled up of the car. All the pictures are from Arm Sotheby, some of the past auction lots that have sold in the past. All right. The extra 10 horsepower in the Hellcat. So I do have a gorgeous green sublime green hellcat on uh, on the youtube right now for the first few years of hellcat production the supercharged 6.2 liter hemi v8 was rated at 707 horsepower at 6,000 rpms and 650 pound-feet of torque at 4,800 rpms and it still is in the current dodge challenger hellcat wide body and jeep grand cherokee trailhawk trackhawk sorry but here's a little secret at 6,100 RPM, the engine produces 717 horsepower. Although the eight-speed automatic is programmed to upshift at 6,000 RPM, and the cars all have a 6,200 RPM fuel cutoff, if you shift manually and hold the gears a bit longer, you get an extra 10 ponies. All right, that's a pretty cool fact that I did not know. All right, next. The Daytona was faster than the Superbirds. I've pulled up a gorgeous silver Daytona with black interior. Let's see here. Homologation specials created to legalize their aerodynamic shapes for NASCAR competition. Just 503 Dodge Charger Daytonas were sold, and Plymouth built only 135, I'm sorry, 1,935 examples of the 1970 Plymouth Roadrunner Superbird. Some say that number is lower, although the two big wing cars look similar. Their shapes, nose cone, and huge rear spoilers actually are actually quite different. And let's see. And the Daytona proved more aerodynamically efficient. A Superbird has a one point has a 0.31 coefficient of drag, while a Daytona's CD is 2.9. On the high banks of Daytona and Talladega, this gave the Daytona one to three more horsepower. I'm sorry, one to three more mile per hour, a significant advantage during a 500 mile race. I did post a picture on Instagram. Uh, this was probably six months ago where I found a collection of, I think it was five wing cars in a row, each a different color on lifts. And I took a picture of the wings and you could really see the difference between the wings on these two cars. One of them is much more upright than the other one. And just based on the picture I'm looking at right now, I would say the Daytona is uh, more upright than the Superbird. But yes, they are not exactly the same. It's also uh, attached to the structure. So you could literally stand on top of that wing and it would not break. So that's very, very cool. All right. Our third, fourth fact for the day. 
the rarest Hemi car. Now the picture I have up online is not an actual Hemi, but it does give you an example of the car. It's been reported that almost 11,426 Hemi powered street Mopars left Dodge and Plymouth assembly plants between 1966 and 1971. The engine was available in a litany of models and body styles over the years, including fan favorites like the Plymouth Cooter, Cuda and Dodge Charger. Tied for the rares are the 1970 Dodge Coronet RT Convertible. The picture I have is a 1967 440 convertible and the 1966 Dodge Coronet four-door sedan. Only two of each were built and all four cars survive today. All right, if you're a huge Mopar fan, Hemi fan, I mentioned the barn find uh, earlier. Those cars are for sale privately. Uh, they are, not all of them have the Hemi engine, but they are Hemi cars. Uh, some of them do have the Hemi engine, and uh, if you're interested in those, shoot me a note. There's also a ton of Hemi parts, very rare Hemi parts uh, that are also available. All right, number five. This is talking about the first muscle car. Most considered the 1964 Pontiac GTO to be the first muscle car, while many in the Mopar camp champion the 1967 Plymouth GTX and Dodge Coronet RT. Now the picture I have online is a 1965 GTO. Let's see, Jim Wangers, considered the godfather of the GTO, disagrees with both assessments. He considers the 260 horsepower 1956 Dodge 500 D500 and the even hotter 1957 Plymouth Fury V800 to be the first true muscle cars. These models weren't Hemi powered, the 318 cubic inch engine V8 used Chrysler's polyspherical cylinder head and the V800 was packing a dual quad version with 290 horsepower. So I could not find pictures of those off hands, which is why you're looking at a GTO right now. All right, number six, this is pretty cool. All right, the first Mopar with 400 net horsepower. In 1972, with pressure from the insurance industry and the U.S. government, the automakers changed the way they rated an engine's horsepower from gross to net. The revised system dropped power ratings across the industry. Although the wedge cars of the early 1960s and the 426 Hemis were rated over 400 horsepower, they were rated with the gross system. The first Mopar to produce 400 horsepower from the factory under the net system was the 1992 Dodge Viper. Its 488 cubic inch V8 V10 was rated at 400 horsepower and 450 pound-feet of torque. Also in the Hemi collection, there was a first-gen Dodge Viper, which I actually absolutely fell in love with. I think it was a 1994 version. Uh, I don't think they are going to let go of that one. All right, with only 4,000 miles. All right, number seven, the first pony car. The Ford Mustang is incorrectly titled as first pony car. Plymouth actually beat the Mustang to market with the Barracuda by two weeks. The first Barracuda was introduced on April 1st, 1964, the Mustang on April 17th. Basically a Valiant with a sexy fastback body as the original Mustang was basically a rebodied sedan. I'm sorry, rebodied Falcon. The Barracuda sold well, but the Mustang was a sensation. The rest is history. Okay, uh, I can tell you right now, <laughs> this thing, you know, 1964 Barracuda is not my cup of tea. It's kind of interesting looking, maybe quirky looking. I would not call it attractive. 
it would be really cool to have one because it is quite interesting looking. I think that's the best way to put it. I want to put it attractive. It's not unattractive. It's just a little bit different. And obviously the, uh, the buyers in the 1964 agreed because the Mustang in my mind is just gorgeous. All right. Number eight, there were six 1965 street Hemi prototypes. All right. I don't think my picture correlates. That's probably for the next one. Yeah. All right. So no pictures for this one. Mopar started racing the 426, I'm sorry, 426 Hemi in 1964, but didn't release it in streetcars until 1966. It did, however, build six prototypes in 1965 and let the media drive a couple of them, including a Coronet 500 hardtop with a torque flight and a Coronet post coupe with a four speed. In his book, Day One, Marty Score, chronicles his time in both cars and says the Dodge engineers told him the hot hardtop ran consistent mid 13 second quarter miles at 100 to 102 miles per hour, which doesn't sound fast today, but that was pretty wicked fast back in the day. Nobody got down into the 12s really back in those days. All right. Number nine, a Mopar had the only factory liftoff hood. So I could not find a picture with the liftoff hood from my resources here, but I do have an example from that year so you can see what the car looks like. Throughout the muscle car era, many cars were sold with fiberglass hoods, but Mopar was the only manufacturer ever willing to sell you a car without hood hinges to save weight and improve engine access. The A12 optioned 1969.5 Dodge Super B and Plymouth Roadrunner were powered by the triple carbureted 440 and had a race style liftoff fiberglass hood with no hinges, just four hood pins. That's very, very cool. All right, number 10, the first functioning functional hood scoop. All right, again, this is a situation where I did not have the perfect picture, but I got a representation. All right, although 1960s muscle cars and hood scoops have become synonymous, true functional hood scoops didn't come into vogue on factory stock machines until the later half of the decade the first Mopar sold off the showroom floor with such a device to feed fresher, cooler air into the engine were the Hemi Darts and Barracuda sold in 1968, but they weren't street legal machines. The first street legal Mopars with factory installed functional scoops were equipped with an N96 cold air induction system in 1969. Better known as Ram Chargers on Dodges and Air Grabbers on Plymouth, the remaining, it remained an option through 1972. It was first offered on the Super B, Coronet RT, Roadrunner, and GTX with 383 or 440 engines was standard on the Hemi. All right, next, the first muscle car with staggered tires. All right, another homologation special, this time for Trans Am Racing, the 1970 Dodge Challenger TA and 1970 Plymouth AAR Cuda. I'm showing a, T uh, let's see, I'm showing actually an RT right now. Uh, were the first American cars, muscle cars with staggered tires, wider rubber in the back than in the front. All right, number 12, the first triple carbureted cars. This one really surprised me. Mopar jumped on the multiple carburation trend in the 1950s when it installed dual quads on the 1955 Chrysler C300. That is the picture I'm showing you now, which is a beautiful car. Although three cars became popular with, the, with Pontiac in 1959 
and Ford in the early 1960s, and the trend expanded to others like Oldsmobile in the middle of the decade and to Chevy Corvette as of 1967, Mopars didn't get triple carburation until the A12 option 440 1969.5 Dodge Super B and Plymouth Roadrunner. While the triple carb setup was called the six-pack by Dodge, the 390 horsepower engines were identical. A year later, the 340 small block and the Challenger TA and the AA Arcuda also got three deuces. All right, number 13. The stock 440 was quicker than a stock Hemi. Well, sort of. All right. In 1969, High Performance Cars Magazine tested a 425 horsepower Hemi Roadrunner with a Torque Flight Automatic, one of just 162 built that year. On its factory-installed 14-inch street tires when, and with its grabber, air grabber cold air induction system open, it ran a best quarter-mile time of 13.32 seconds at just over 107 miles an hour. It also managed a 13.28-second run on slicks, all equipped with a 410 rear end. Wow. Then they tested a 446-barrel-equipped Plymouth Roadrunner with a 4-speed 15-inch tires and 410 gearing. That car's best run was 13.79 seconds on street rubber and 13.18 seconds at over 107 miles an hour on slicks. That's very, very interesting. All right. Number 14, why Mopar never built four-speed 1969 440 darts or Barracudas. Ever wonder why Mopar built exactly... Okay, I do not have a picture for this one. I apologize. All right. Ever wonder why Mopar built exactly 640 440-powered Dodge darts and 360 440-powered Plymouth Barracuda in 1969? Because the NHRA rulebook required 1,000 cars to be built with that A13 option before the big block... RB-powered A-bodies would be legal for competition. Ever wonder why they were all built with 727 Torque Flight 3-speed automatics? It's because Dodge and Plymouth paired that transmission with the company's 8-and-3-quarter-inch rear end. A 4-speed manual would have required a stronger Dana 60 rear end, which is too wide for a dart with stock rear wheel wells. The Hemi-powered darts were available with either transmission, and they all got the Dana 60 but the rear wheel wells were cut out to fit the wider rear end and larger tires. All right, now that's it from Haggerty, but we do have some from hotcars.com. Uh, number 15 is the pistol grip shifter, which is the picture I'm showing you right now. Uh, Chrysler wasn't afraid to outsource for parts if it meant better quality and cost using Holley carburetors and using Hearst performance equipment. One piece of Hearst unique to Mopar's was the Hearst Pistol Grip Shifter introduced in 1970. The Pistol Grip was available on a range of Mopars from the Dusters to Superbirds and everything in between. Chrysler favored using Hearst Shifters since the mid-60s, while other companies offered only OEM Shifters in the beginning. The Pistol Grip Shifter was wood grain and modeled after its namesake, namesake a Pistol Grip. Many praises ergonomics and the actual throws of the shifter itself. These are only available in Mopars from the factory with other companies, while other companies stuck with OEM models or whatever Hearst would give them. Just thinking about the Boss 302s and Boss 429s, they had the T-handle Hearst shifter in 69 and 70. All right, let's stick with the gun theme here. I do have a picture of this, pretty interesting. Number 16, machine gun exhaust tips were an option. Chrysler and guns names again. In 1971, Chrysler introduced slotted exhaust tips 
on the new Roadrunner and Charger. The exhaust tips were slotted and wrapped around orange outlets, making them a re resemble a hot machine gun barrel. These were a popular option in the early 1970s and couldn't be found on GM or Ford vehicles. Unfortunately, in 1971, the days of the muscle car era were numbered and some feature features were already banned. The machine gun exhaust tips were banned in the state of California, why don't you know it, for emissions reasons. So if your original condition 1971 Mopar muscle car doesn't have them, there's a good chance the car was sold in California originally. All right. Now let's go to number 17, just a few more here. Mopar's cartoon branding. So I tried to grab a couple here. I love this. Sure, GTO had the Judge logo and AMC used the vibrant red, white, and blue paint schemes, but Chrysler had the best marketing gimmick of the 1960s, cartoon characters. Let's start with Plymouth, who licensed Roadrunner and Wild E. Coyote from Looney Tunes for use on their Roadrunner. It had a little logo on the, on the horn. It sounded like a meme. Plymouth even installed a horn that sounded beep beep like the Roadrunner from the cartoon. It's actually more of a meme, I think. Plymouth also has some in house logos, including the Dust Ball. Let's see if I can find that one. Yeah, there's the Dust Ball uh, for the Plymouth Duster and a Tornado for the Twister Duster. Dodge, Dodge used all in house designs with a B equipped with a racing helmet and wheels, cladding Super B models. That's around here somewhere. There it is. Uh, Dodge also put a demon on the 1971 to 1972 Dodge Demon with much controversy. Obviously, that one has come back. Dodge isn't shy to use cartoon characters today, still using the Super B and a modernized demon logo. Dodge has also introduced a cat logo for the Hellcat models and a Viper for the Viper models. Jeep has even gotten into the madness putting a hawk on their track hawk models there's no shortage of logos badges and mascots but mopar knew how to brand them and still does today all right number 18 i've already switched to this slide here this is super cool high impact colors if you ever looked at a mopar muscle car you probably noticed loud colors compared to their gm and ford counterparts and this was intentional chrysler launched a line of 25 colors in 1970 including basics like black and white but there was a new line of 10 bright colors dubbed high impact colors. High impact colors changed names depending on if it was a Plymouth or Dodge, but they were the same nonetheless. Less. Uh, favorites include Plum Crazy Purple, Panther Pink, and Go Mango. Plymouth even put all the colors on a 1970 CUDA to display for advertising. And that, I believe, is the picture I'm showing right now. GM and Ford tried to keep up with the bright colors of their own, but Mopar's new colors proved to be popular and boosted sales. Prior to the introduction of the high-impact colors, Chrysler still had more notable colors than its competitors, including mauve and hemi-orange. <laughs> I wish this would come back. I know it kind of has a little bit, but I'm just tired of white, silver, and black. Come on, people. Of course, that's what we're buying. That's why they make it. All right, next. The creation of the wing cars. All right, we already talked a little bit about the wing cars. Let's talk a little bit more. No other brand made anything remotely comparable to the wing cars. During the 1960s, Ford and Mercury were battling Plymouth and Dodge for the NASCAR championship, and by 1968, Ford was beginning to win. Richard Petty switched to Ford cars, unsatisfied with the aerodynamics of his Plymouth. Ford's Torino was more aerodynamic, and the 429 V8 made monster power, making the Torino a beast on the super speedways. 
angry, Dodge fired back in 1969 with the Dodge Charger Daytona. A Charger 500 equipped with a nose cone and a massive wing on the trunk. Plymouth followed suit in 1970, putting a nose cone and wing on the Roadrunner, calling their version the Superbird. Petty switched back to Chrysler for the 1970 season, partially due to the wing car's dominance on the super speedways. Buddy Baker was the first to break the 200-mile mark in a 1969 Dodge Charger Daytona during the Talladega 500. NASCAR eventually banned the cars for being too dominant on the speedways, or on the super speedways. All right, now we're up to number 20, the Shocker. This is talking about the Hemi that is not a Dodge or Plymouth, but in the, instead it is a Ford. Yes, there was a Ford Hemi. Most notable, well, here we go. This is from Motor Trend. In a great twist for muscle car lovers, the gearheads at Ford also designed and built a Hemi engine that was available for sale in limited quantities of Mustangs in 1969 and 1970. Called the Boss 429, these rear models are coveted because of their Hemi engine technology, like Chrysler's, made them among the most powerful muscle cars on the road. Note, Mercury offered an even rarer example of the Boss 429 Hemi in the Cougar Eliminator. Prior to this, Ford offered the race use only uh, SOC 427, a Hemi head crate engine derived from the FE engine platform and offered over-the-counter at special Ford dealerships. Nevertheless, Chrysler came to the Hemi game first in 1952 and popularized the hemispherical combustion chamber design, making Hemi a household world a household word. By the time Ford produced its Hemi, Chrysler already owned the Hemi in enthusiast hearts and minds. When Ford built its Hemi-headed Blue Crescent Boss 429 based on the 385 series big block, it shared nothing with Chrysler's Hemi except its combustion chamber concept. Today, the word Hemi is so thoroughly wed to Chrysler that when it is used correctly to refer to another brand's Hemi engine, many folks incorrectly conflate Ford as being a Mopar. Fun fact, Alfa Romeo and Lancia, two other Stellantis brands related today by marriage to Mopar, both offer famous Hemi engines. How about them apples? All right, that's the shocker. But honestly, this next one is probably an even bigger shocker. How's that for a tease? All right, if you're wondering why I keep messing up sometimes, it's because I am not only reading, watching the sound levels, Moving the slides, it's a lot going on here behind the scenes. <laughs> All right, number 21. Today's Hemis are not actually Hemis. Shocker. Hemi is a short shortening of semi-hemispherical, and it refers to the shape of the original Hemis combustion chamber. The third generation Hemis combustion chamber, in fact, is a section of a oblate spheroid, not a semi-hemisphere proving that if you're going to get it wrong, you might as well go all the way. Correctly capitalized as Hemi, it refers specifically to Chrysler's patented engine design. A Hemi without capitalization refers to generically to any engine with a hemispherical combustion chamber. So all the new Hemis that are on the road right now are not actually Hemis. It's a marketing ploy, but that's okay because we love it and we can have the cartoon characters, right? All right, our very last fact. <laughs> what is the most expensive muscle car? Now, this isn't related to just Hemi's, but we'll go ahead and count them off here. The 1971 Plymouth Hemi Cuda four-speed convertible is the most valuable muscle car ever built at the time that this article was written. That is not so much true now. There's only 12 of them built, 
And I think there was only, uh, let's see, only three were known to have the four-speed manual transmission. Now, this might be a little dated here, but this is like the top five muscle cars sold at auction. Uh, these are not all muscle cars. There is a pony car in here. Number five, the 1970 Dodge Hemi Challenger RT convertible sold for $1.4 That is one of the four-speed cars, I believe. Number four is a 1970 Plymouth Hemi Cuda convertible for $2.7 All right. And then number three is a 1971 Plymouth Hemi Cuda convertible for $3.5 Now, here's where we go into the pony car world. Number two... It's the 1968 Ford Mustang GT Bullet at 3.74 million, uh, famously sold, Steve McQueen's car from the movie Bullet. And number one, the 1965 Mustang Shelby GT350R, the flying Mustang, the prototype for the racer, sold for $4 million. So, uh, yeah, so for a while there, the Hemi convertible was the most expensive muscle car ever built. I guess technically it still is because number one and number two are both pony cars. So that is it. 22 things you did not know about Mopar. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a lot. <laughs> I'll roll these out every once in a while. Hopefully I'll do Ferrari, Lamborghini, you know, some of the other brands. If you want to know one in particular, just shoot me a note. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for sharing. And I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.